Good morning, church. So good to see you guys. Uh, do me a favor, take out your Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians. We're continuing in our series this week. I want to take just a minute, though, to give you uh, a little bit of a 30,000-foot overview of an update on where we are on our South Austin Forward campaign. Uh, a few of you um, have actually, uh, a few things have actually been completed with the scope of the project. I don't know if you've ever been to the EC or not, but the education center over there that desperately needed some updating, uh, upgrading, if you will, of at least just the aesthetic aspects of that building. There's been some paint that's happened and carpet that's happened. Very basic, a very small portion of the process, but if you haven't checked it out, go check out the EC. There's new carpet, paint, lighting, and things like that. So those classrooms feel all new and fresh and feels really good. And Robin Wiggins led that whole thing for us, did a fantastic job. I don't know if she's here this morning, but Robin, thank you. It was a lot of, a lot of hard work that was extra for her uh, in that whole project. Um, and it's a very, very small portion of it, but the big portion is uh, the student building uh, that's across the courtyard. And we've been working very hard with architects, contractors, civil engineers, and the city of Austin uh, for all of this. And honestly, it hadn't been too bad. It's just really us trying to figure out what all the city is going to, to need and sort of prep the project to be able to go in and meet all those demands like, you know, maybe in our second pass we'll get it, you know, that kind of thing. And so it does, does take a lot of time with a lot of people involved. And uh, we've worked on a set of plans. We're trying to make sure they'll go through that city process smoothly. But also at the same time, we have to, we go, oh, with this, we go through the city and then we go, well, what would it cost? And so we go to the contractor and they take weeks to figure out, okay, what's that going to cost? And then the cost comes back and we go, uh, nope, can't do all of that. Let's do this. You know, so we, it's, it's a lot of tug and war back and forth of processing. But I'm telling you, it's going to come uh, to a really good place. And uh, we feel like things are going to, to move forward really quickly very soon. But just know there's a lot of work going on behind the curtain to try to get there. Right now, it looks as though we are on a general timeline. And I hate to set expectations, but I'm just letting you know. Um, maybe breaking, I don't know if they call it wall breaking or what when you do a big renovation like this. Um, but we will like break ground uh, and start that project probably somewhere around April of next year. Uh, so... Factoring in all the city process, factoring in all the things that have to be done to leaving, lead up there. And if you feel like that will, that's a forever away, I know. It's construction in Austin. And if you've had anybody do construction in Austin, it just, it just takes a lot of time. It makes, and most of the time it takes longer than you thought. Um, and so just be patient with us. Be praying for the team. Uh, the uh, capital improvement team is in it, engaged fully. Rob Byers is chairing that team. He's doing a fantastic job. Amen, right over here. And uh, so if you have questions, sorry, Rob. Rob would be a great guy to talk to. So uh, that just was from the hip. So I apologize for the Y'all be easy on him, okay? But anyway, he's, he's a great person to go to ask questions or anything like that. But be patient with us. It's moving forward. You guys have been generous. We're, we're on track. It's just taking a little longer, and uh, we will get there, okay? All right, moving on. We're in uh, week three of our series in Colossians. I'm sorry. We're in week four. We're in week four, right? Thank y'all for, for being on it. I now know you're with me. Week four of our week, last week, Paul talked about last week, in the last part of chapter 1, he talked about himself. You know, he started the letter talking about the church, 
And then he began, he shifted quickly and spent a very wonderful portion there about the glory of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And he gave this incredible picture of the glory of Jesus Christ, and he talked about who Jesus is and who he is for us and what he's accomplished, and, and it was a glorious place. And then the next section we looked at, Paul talked about himself. And he says, I was called an apostle. I was called to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And he's, Paul's suffering was part of his calling, and it wasn't suffering for suffering's sake. Paul saw his suffering like an athlete, that my suffering is producing something really great with God. And, and this is so worth it because that is coming, right? It's like for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. He saw something great through it and, and pursued it. And Paul saw something great through his suffering uh, for the sake of the church, for you and me. We benefit greatly from Paul's sufferings in ministry. Um, and he saw something great in the kingdom, a place of honor, a place of uh, authority that he was privileged to be invited into. And he talked about himself last week. And this week, we're moving into chapter 2. And most commentators that I saw said that what chapter 2 basically is, is the whole reason Paul wrote the letter in the first place. You know, you, you gotta, it takes a while for you to get to your point with things in communications. Um, but if you had to strip away all the coverings and coatings, chapter 2 would probably be the thing Paul really said, you know what, I need to, tell, I need to talk to them about some things. And chapter 2 is probably the core motivator for him to take out a pen and write and to put a team together and to write that letter the way they did it in that day. And so chapter 2 really is all about the main, the main point to this church and dealing with the main thing that they were uh, struggling with. Verse 1 through 8, though, in chapter 2 is really a great summary of the whole chapter. So verses 1 to 8 really encapsulate what he wants to communicate with the whole chapter. Verses 9 all the way to the end of the chapter are the details regarding a comment that he made in verse 8. And so the whole rest of the chapter is really unpacking a lot of those details. Um, and so we're going to go through verse 1 to 8 this morning, and I'm just going to walk verse by verse through those eight passages, and we're going to look at what Paul really wanted to deal with, with the church in Colossae, and we're going to see, let's look at how it affects and, and applies to us today, okay? Well, let's pray before we jump into God's Word. Father, we, uh, we just dedicate this time to you, and Lord, we thank you that um, we get to come together as your family and Lord, we declare to you that we set this time apart from the common times and the common things. And we dedicate this time to you. You have our full attention. And Lord, we pray that you would capture any distractions in our heart and our mind as we focus completely on you. And then Lord, most of all, that we would hear you and we would fellowship with you in your word. That you'd guide our meditations. That you would fill us with the things that we so desperately need to live fully for you. And so speak to us, minister to us, grace us wonderfully right now in this moment. We're all yours. And we declare that to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. 
So you see there's a, a sentence here where he's actually admitting that he hasn't seen these people. He doesn't know who they are. He's heard names. Epaphras was someone who was um, impacted by Paul's ministry and the gospel. And then Epaphras goes and he's in Colossae and he's with these people. He may have preached the gospel to them and they believed and he rallied them together and made a church just like Paul would do in other places. And there's a church there in Colossae and Epaphras is working with them and discipling them. And then Epaphras comes and maybe visits Paul in prison and gives them word, says, hey, there's a church in Colossae, and, and, uh, and here's what they're like. And there's really cool things happening. And the things that Paul heard, he really liked. He was like, well, there's some things that I really like that, he, that I hear about you that, man, that's really wonderful because that's main indicators of a church and that you're the real deal. And that's really encouraging. But there's some other things that Epaphras shared with him that they were being impacted by that caused him concern. And so he wants to write to these people he's never seen, never met personally, and he wants to instruct them with the authority of an apostle and the gospel in their lives. And he wants to clarify some things that are happening and some things that they are hearing. And so he continues in verse 2. He says, They've not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this is a key phrase, these two verses here, because it may give us some indication of the false teaching that was coming into the churches all over the Roman Empire, but particularly Colossae in this moment. And he, he is wanting to uh, clear the air, if you will, and use even terms, terms that would identify with those things and, and, and provide the truth. But he says here that their hearts would be encouraged. In other words, that word for encouraged is like not doubting, not wavering. Um, and, and, and encouraged means and I, I am strengthening you in your position in the gospel, and that you are encouraged in your position in the gospel, that you're not swayed and doubting like, is this it, or was there something else? He doesn't want them to have that. He wants them to have the full courage of knowing that they have the gospel, the real, the true gospel. Uh, he says, knit together in love. Isn't that a beautiful picture that Paul uses there of knitting knitting a blanket or whatever, and all this fabric and, and all this stuff being knit together. And he says that the church interactions are loving each other and ordering ourselves and interacting with one another and sharing the gospel with each other is the Lord knitting us together in love. He's teaching us how to love each other in community, to consider others above ourselves, more important than ourselves, that we sacrificially and selflessly care for you. I care more about the church, I care more about you than I care about myself and my own conveniences and my own needs. Uh, and all of us doing that together is God knitting us together with his divine love. He fills our hearts with divine love and we share that love with each other and then there's this beautiful picture. And that's the phrase, a community growing together in love. Growing into the mystery of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is called the mystery of God. Uh, for Paul's reason, it's because from Genesis all the way to Malachi, you have God kind of revealing progressively through the Old Testament this idea of a Messiah, a deliverer who would come and to save and, uh, God's people. And it's 
a little bit is revealed here and a little bit is revealed there and a little bit more and a little bit more all along the way. And basically Paul is agreeing with John who says that, you know, in Jesus, he comes, the, the thing is, the, the, the dimmer switch is all the way up. God has revealed everything that he's going to reveal to humanity and he's done it all in full as much as he's ever going to do in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. So that everything you want to know, everything you want to know about God, he's already said it and it's all in Jesus Christ. So you want to get to know God, get to know Jesus. That's the path. And why does he say that? Well, verse 4, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And those are two phrases there. Delude, uh, literally in the Greek, is someone coming beside you and convincing you and talking to you and leading you off into a bad place. Influencing you, persuading you. Think of, uh, man, I'm having a rough uh, it's the Pinocchio illustration where all the, the, the bad friends come out and Pinocchio gets mixed up with them and then they take him off to some fair. Y'all remember that? Okay. Well, he gets coming alongside people and they go, hey, well, you need to come over here and do this. And then it's like, that's the picture here. I don't want anyone to delude you, delude you, come alongside you and start filling your head with a bunch of falsehoods and take you to a place that's terrible. I don't want that to happen to you. And they use plausible arguments. Uh, basically, maybe your translation says persuasive speech. In other words, they engage you with a conversation and make you feel inspired. Maybe like, um, you know, kind of like the, you know, the, the vacuum salesmen of old. Oh, look at that mess that you have there. Well, this one does four times the horsepower. And the, you know, they come and they engage you with like, well, your Christianity um, seems kind of subpar. Uh, your Christianity has, I don't know. It's a, but this one over here, this like plausible arguments, this persuasive speech, trying to sell you, trying to show you there's more or the better way or sell you something that's, that's higher or better or more full. Or you're tapping into a secret over here. Nobody knows about this. And just because it's you, I'm going to give you this special price. Just because it's you. Come over here. You're special. You're more like us. So we're going to give you this special price. Persuasive speech. This is the idea. And false teachers were going around and they used this type of method in their presentations to sell people on something other than or similar language to the gospel. And they uh, delude the people. This was the challenge of the early church. It was a major challenge in the early church. For the first 300 some odd years of the church, they had two major obstacles and challenges that actually produced good for the church, but they were the two toughest challenges. And the first challenge was the first 300 years, the church faced on the inside what's called heresies. In other words, Christians who were part of the church would begin teaching, and they would start weaving in things that sound like Christianity, but it would be some other religion too kind of mixed in, and it would have, it would have a form of, you know, Christianity, but then it didn't sound quite right, but it sounded appealing, uh, this sort of thing. False teachers, they would come in and they'd bring heresies, but once you got to the bottom of the heresies, it was clearly a heresy, but it took a long time to weed through all the, the information they were feeding 
to try to get to what they actually believed and what they were actually trying to teach at the core. And so it took a long time to discover as a heresy. Um, and sometimes that process was very messy and a lot of people were led astray and they left the gospel because some other gospel. And you see that all through the New Testament. But internally, there were combustion movements within the church for 300 years and the church wrestled with these different powerful influential speakers that all had little different things that they were teaching but what happened in the church is you go through a process of trying to identify no 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 what is the truth how is this teaching this new movement in contrast to what we believe because it seems very similar and what the church wrestled with for over 300 years uh, they, what happened in that whole process was the development of orthodoxy. In other words, saying this is what the gospel is, and whatever else comes into contrast with this is not, a, it's not the gospel. And they had to define that, define that over and over and over through lots of processes, and they, came, and they came to the place where they say, no, this is what we believe. They would even put out creedal statements to say, this is what we believe. This is what we believe. And then that would force that movement that had begun to admit that they're not the same, and then they would either move their way out, go start another church or something like that. But that's how the church started. The great, great challenge was internal heresies and inspiring preachers and influential people saying things unorthodox but sounded well the same language, okay? That's the first challenge. The second one was they were persecuted, sometimes really, really harsh. And in the, in the rings, uh, the theaters, they call them, the people would show up, and then they would just have games with them and be, let them be martyred and, and killed by animals and beasts and gladiators. And they'd do all kinds of things just to entertain people with brutalizing Christians, and so a Christian had to not only know what they believed and contra contrast that with other heresies that were running around. And Jesus even told them that. You've got a lot of sheep, uh, wolves that have come along in sheep's clothing, you know. And that's going to happen. Just get used to it, early church, because that's, what, that's what's going to happen. You're going to have a lot of false teachers come. And you're going to have to discern who's real and who's not. And that's a little bit of a messy process in that day. But then also, not only did they have to discern that, but they had to actually st stand for what they believe and die for it. So the early church, I call it the whole patristic period even, the uh, first 300 years of the church, this was the constant challenge on the church. And Paul here is dealing with heresies, speeches, inf influential persuasive speeches and teachings that are kind of rising up in the church and the church is getting wind of it and they're kind of figuring out, what do I do with this? What do we do with this? Is this what we believe? Or do we got it wrong and they got it right? How do, we, how do we do this, right? And this is what Paul writes these letters for because he wants to settle the matter. He wants to settle it. So then he says in verse 5, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. In other words, he has some things he wants to say, these are good. In other words, the first one is that you are um, your good order. In other words, the way they conducted themselves was uh, a, a loving community, that they respected each other, they were orderly in their conduct with one another. There wasn't just uh, a bunch of factions and backbiting and everybody tearing into each other and fight. And, and that there was not, there was not a, this kind of thing in the Colossian church because he says, I see your good order, that you are a great expression of the grace of God that has filled hearts in your community. The way that you operate together is, a, is, a, is an orderly 
respectful and loving way of engaging each other. Your, firm, your good order. And then he says, and your firmness of your faith in Christ. In other words, these people expressed a commitment to Christ um, beyond anything else in their life. That they had a firmness, a strength, like a tree in a storm that was rooted and says, I will not give in, I will not yield. I am going to, I'm going to commit, I'm committed to Christ and I'm devoted to Christ if it costs me my very life. The firmness, firmness of your faith in Christ. So he says, I see your good order and I see your firmness in the gospel. And I love it. And it's really awesome to see. And so you would say Paul would teach the church, love the truth, church. Fight for the truth. Secondly, love each other. Love each other. Sacrifice for each other. Sacrifice for each other and serve each other. But then in verse 6 and 7, he moves on. Therefore... As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. What he's saying is you might, you might and, and this is room for interpretation, you might say that, hey, just as you receive Jesus, now obey him. Okay? And that, it could, it's within the text. It's within the range of interpretation of the text. Here's what I believe that he is saying, though, to this church. The way you receive Jesus, walk in that same thing. That's what I believe he's saying because he's dealing with heresies here. The way you receive Jesus is the way you continue with Jesus. Galatians chapter 3, 2 and 3 has a very similar text to a different church, but it's the same essence. He says, he says this to the church in Galatians that was just eaten up with Judaizers, and they thought, you got to become a Jew in order to become a Christian and be right with God. You have to obey all of these things in order for, for Jesus to accept you, and they were teaching all of this. And he's writing the Galatians, and the Galatians started buying into it. They believed the persuasive speech, and he's like, hold up. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So what he's reminding them of is their salvation. You heard the gospel preached and proclaimed among you. He says, actually, visibly, Christ was crucified there in front of you. Uh, a beautiful portrayal, uh, a beautiful expression of the portrayal of the gospel was clearly laid out in front of their very eyes. They heard the gospel and they believed God is real. Christ is the Messiah. I'm a sinner. He has offered to save me, and I'm trusting him, and I'm making him my Savior. They heard the gospel. The Messiah has come. He is my Savior, and they trusted him. And what happened to them? They received the Holy Spirit. They experienced freedom. They experienced forgiveness and cleansing. They experienced a full expression uh, in their heart that they are children of God, and they can't explain it. They just happened. The Spirit of God came and dwelled within them and changed them. And he asked, how did you receive that? How did you get that power that set you so free? And they would have to say, well, I heard the gospel and I responded. And he would say, what makes you think that you've got to go obey the law now? You continue in that same thing that the Spirit came in the first place. That's what you continue in, a relationship with Jesus. Here's the idea. In the Acts Church, you can read 
there was a big struggle in the day over Gentiles who come to Christ, non-Jews. They come to Christ and they show evidence. They've been filled by the Spirit. Man, God has chosen these people and given them grace just like he's given the Jew. And they had to wrestle with this. And then the question became, does a Gentile have to be circumcised? Do I have to become a Jew in order to have the Jewish Messiah save me? Do I have to observe all the law, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the, the festivals? Do I have to be circumcised? Do I have to enter into those observances in order to be received by this Messiah? Great question, Eric. Isn't that right? And actually, the apostles and everybody worked this out over a long And the Spirit of God kept affirming his will for this. But what Paul was saying here was, hey, you receive the Spirit by believing the gospel. Now, you think God's going to receive you because you obey all of these commands and become a Jew. You think, you, you think that's what God wants? No. How did you, what did you do to receive the Spirit? I trusted the gospel. I heard and I trusted. And Paul says, that's also how you grow. You stay right there. You receive Jesus you entered into a relationship with him, now walk with him. That's your answer. It's not hoops, religious hoops of observance from the Old Testament. Go and cross all these things off, and then God goes, okay, now, come on in. Like he, they, they are leaving grace, and they're going back to works. Many of you are very familiar with this. But this is the, the, the problem that's happening in the early church. The way that you receive Christ you entered into a relationship. Now continue in that relationship. Don't think that some other thing is what's going to do it for you. It's a relationship. Lost my place here. How many of you took ski class? You ever been skiing? And you took ski class, right? And they take you in, they humiliate you, and they sit you with the kids. And say, get your boots out. Here's how you take your boots. Here's how you put them on. Here's how you strap. And you're sitting there strapping with kids. And you're like, oh, man. You know? And it's humiliating. But it's the first and the basics. Why? Because you don't put your boots on right? Disaster. And then you know what? They tell you how to take them off. Right? And why? Because it's hard to take them off. And you need to learn how to take them off. And it's the basics. It's number one. Before you even get on the slope, they tell you what? Keep the weight on the front of the boot because you put the weight on the back of your boot. What happens? Garage sale. That's what we used to, that's what we call a big crash, right? Garage sale. It's, you put your weight on the front, right? And then what do you do? Pizza. I hope you're tracking with me. Anyway. <laughs> Last I checked, even the most talented Olympian puts their boots on and takes them off. They may be a lot more experienced. They may have a lot more under their belt. They've been doing it a lot longer. But they never graduated from putting their boots on and taking them off. Paul is saying, you never graduate from a relationship with Jesus, ever. You don't have a relationship with Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit, and then you go into some other thing as if God, you're trying to work your way up to that thing with God. No, 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 no. You started with a relationship with Jesus. Now you continue in a relationship with Jesus. That is, that is the answer. 
That is the answer. Why does that need to be said? Well, it needs to be said because of verse 8. Paul's addressing it right here. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And what is he pointing to? We really don't know exactly. But he's pointing to a heresy or a couple of heresies that were going around. And what he's dealing with is he's calling, he's, he's, he's using some adjectives and some terms to describe these influential speeches that are coming into the church. And Paul is saying influential speeches you're hearing cloak themselves in Christianity, but it's not Christianity, and you need to be clear about that. It is something else. And if a teaching comes along and takes you away from full grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, and you enter into a relationship with Jesus, and you get the fullness of God, everything in that very moment, there's nothing more to be had from God. You get it all right there by grace as a gift when you hear, believe, repent, and trust Jesus. You get it all. The whole waterfall of all the fullness of God and all of his goodness to you all comes to you by that act. See to it that no one takes you down some other path that says you don't have the fullness. Hey, just something else. So you, you know, you got a little sub-Christianity over here. Like over here, man, it's really, it's really where it's at, where really God is, really. You, know, you got this sort of base level. And this is the temptation that's going around. Two biggies that are going around, let me just briefly mention them. One was Gnosticism, and probably when Paul wrote this, it was not even full out yet. It was just sort of going in back alleys, secretive, kind of on its uh, development phase, if you will. Um, and Gnosticism was basically there's a secret, mysterious knowledge that a few entered into through a mystical experience. And they used the words like narrow is the way. And it was a mystical secret. And you had to have a spiritual, super spiritual experience. And when you did, you got this secret knowledge that God only allows a few to know. Do you see the language that they could have used of Christianity for them to du be duped into this? That, oh, I trusted Jesus and I'm following Jesus with his family as best I know how. And that's not enough. You now have the super spiritual experience, and there's a knowledge over here that's secret, and it's a mystery, and it's a, and it's a mysterious experience that, that only a few are privileged to have. And you get that, you get a secret knowledge, and you're in the inner club, and God, you know, there's secret things that come through you. You see, this is, this is the essence of Gnosticism. There's a whole framework of what Gnosticism taught. It basically doesn't even exist today, um, very minimally, uh, only in for Christian teachers to know what it was because it was something that was dealt with. But see, this is the idea of having a, you can need a super spiritual experience, a mystical experience to really have the real thing with God. Then you have the Judaizers. It's most common in the New Testament. you got to become a Jew, circumcised. And you can imagine that Gentile men probably got, I got the gospel, and then they started hearing circumcision. You can imagine they pumping the brakes a little, you know, and going, wait, are we sure? Are we sure? Because, and then the Acts Church has to solve it all out. This became a debate. The Judaizers are going around demanding it, saying you've got to observe the law. The law is not um, left apart. Uh, and all of this sort of thing, and all the confusion that comes with that. Now, it, it, it was almost as if both of these heresies 
had a morality and a super a spiritual experience that was somehow super and it offered like the, the real deal over here. Today I call them super spiritualists and you can run into them all the time. Super spiritual because they've had a mystical experience that was powerful in their life. Super spiritual because they've learned something deeper than the basics and they have more of God now. Super spiritual because they have a strong religiosity that they're very uh, disciplined and overly disciplined in how much they endure suffering uh, for the gospel. And if you read for yourself in the rest of the chapter, the thing that Paul addresses seems that he's addressing these heresies that have these tones, tones to them. And no one knows for sure. And you know why we don't know for sure? Paul never names them out. His whole approach, he never names them and identifies them. He only like shotgun shell shoots at them. Therefore, we don't really know even what that was in full. And you know why I'm glad he didn't? Because you know what? We'd be like hunkered down studying these heresies that existed back in the early church when it ain't even worth the time to Paul. If I will just spell out the truth to you, then you'll be able to identify heresies quickly and easily. Is that right? See, Paul doesn't even name it, doesn't go into the detail. You just hear him dealing with something out there, but you don't know exactly what it is, but you know some tones that it has, and I think those tones are common for us today too, right? Have you ever felt you're somehow sub-Christian because you haven't had a spiritual experience, a mystical spiritual experience that, that other people have and you haven't, and you feel like somehow your Christianity is subpar? Have you ever had that? It's a good indicator. Hit the brakes. Have you ever felt like you have a sub-Christianity because you aren't as religiously devoted as another person, how much they suffer and sacrifice, and they just, it's on display, and you see all of the, the rigidity of their, their morality, and, the, and, and, they, and they even are, are just, there's not a lot of space for grace, and you're like, oh, wow, like they never make a mistake. Man, they are so godly, and I can't, I can't. and you feel like somehow you have a subpar Christianity, that somehow you have less of God and they have more of God. So easy to jump into that. So easy to be tempted to think that that's true. No one knows for sure what these heresies are because Paul doesn't address them. He just says basically, look at this. When you trusted Jesus and you got introduced to the glorious Son of God and he changed you and you have experienced that, right then in that moment, you have all the fullness of God. You can't improve on that. It's there for you. Now, we grow in it, right? But we don't grow into it as if we get it. You have all the fullness of God at salvation. You have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, by his Holy Spirit. And don't you ever feel you have somehow lessened your, your subpar Christian because you simply walk with Jesus in a devoted life. And you open your word and you read your Bible and you listen to Jesus and you fellowship with his family. And that somehow that simple devotion ain't enough. Paul says, don't get lured, deluded into thinking, okay, this is how you come in, but then you graduate to the real place over here. No, what you started with is what you continue in. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you know what? You grow 
You know how you grow? You grow in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me look at 2 Corinthians eleven three four. 4. a beautiful phrase there. Paul says this, but I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You hear that? How was Eve deceived? There's more to have. There's an experience you haven't had that you should have had, but God hadn't given it to you. There's more to be had. You can be like God. You see this tree over here? There's more. There's a better experience. You can be like God. You can know things that you don't know right now. You're just right here. You hear the cunning? You know the devil and his ways. The gospel's not enough. Did God really say, there's more for you to experience? You don't have the fullness. Let me, let me just do this real quick. I'm going to throw out a theological term. Butakal received it really well, so let's say. I'm sorry for the headache, but there's some three theological terms I want you to listen to very quickly. When you are saved, there's justification. And justification is that moment of salvation where you heard the gospel, you responded in your heart, you believed and you trusted Jesus to save you. You received the Holy Spirit. You became a child of God in that moment. That can happen for any person in this room in the chair that you're sitting in without moving a muscle. You can do it right now. And you can have all the fullness of God pour into your life. I don't care how far you've gone. I don't know how much you've sinned. I don't care how bad you've been. I don't care. You're a human being. You're loved by God. He sent his son for you. He'll forgive you and wash you clean, make you his child, and use you for his glory. He'll do it starting right now. You can make that decision and not move a muscle in your chair. But do you feel what I feel when I say that? When I was growing up. Oh, that's it? Well, that sounds real convenient. You can just be right with God. Behave how you want. Be right with God. Seems real easy. That ain't right. Something ain't right there. Do you know that's one of the problems Paul has addressed in the New Testament? Is people abusing the freeness and the beauty and the waterfall of God's grace that they just receive? He has to address the abuse of it because it's so beautiful and because it's so full and because it's so free. But that's justification. You trust Jesus. You get the fullness of God instantaneously. You have treasures in heaven. You have heaven awaiting you. You are God's child, and it's all true for you. Now, you could say justification is the separation from the penalty of your sins. All taken care of. Jesus did every bit of it on the cross on your behalf. You are reconciled to God. You have nothing in between you and the Lord. Any longer, Jesus took all of that for you and he gave you his righteousness. In other words, God relates to you in the same dynamics and characteristics that he relates to Jesus himself. He sees you the same way. He treats you the same way. Same way. You have all of God. Nothing you can do unproven on that. It's all given to you in a moment. Then you have sanctification. Sanctification is a growth process. It's walking with the Lord, and it changes you progressively. But you don't get sanctification by going out and doing for God. Y'all know that, right? Getting devoted, getting serious, proving to God how valuable you are, pulling on your religious things, and just hunch it over your shoulders, and I'm going to prove how worthy I am to God. You know that is not sanctification. That is religious pride, and that will kill you. Do you know how you grow in sanctification? That same way you grew in justification. Jesus, I need you today. I'm opening my word, and I'm listening. Let me obey you. Give me life. Help me today. 
I'm walking in a relationship. That's it. You had all the fullness. Now you go over here and try to get the fullness. And he's like, no, you got all the fullness. Now just walk in it. Just walk in it. Sanctification in a relationship with Jesus daily. I get up in his word. I fellowship with his church. And I'm walking with Jesus. I'm trying to obey the best I know how. I'm listening to his voice. And I'm following him. You do that every day. He's going to change you. You ain't got to worry about change. You will change. You're interacting with the Son of God by the Holy Spirit. He will not let you stay the same. I promise. But you keep it simple. I have a relationship with the Son of God in his word, with his church. And I'm in my sincere devotion to him. That's what I'm relying on for everything. That's sanctification. And you can call it being separated from the power of sin. In other words, you're becoming less Less sin is having mastery in your life. Jesus is having more mastery in your life as you relate and follow him. And he just shows you things and you obey him and you just walk with him. It's a relationship. But then you got glorification. And you know what that is? Heaven. Right? The full presence of Jesus Christ in heaven. You're seeing him and knowing him as you are seen and known. No more veil. It's the fullness of it. And you can call that the separation of sin. You don't have the separation from the presence of sin altogether. It's not there anymore. And then you're there. You're done. It's the fullness that has been promised to you. You've, you've entered into it. You receive justification by hearing and believing, trusting Jesus and entering into that relationship. You're sanctified, same way. You get to the end in glorification, same way. You don't ever graduate from putting on your boots. You don't ever graduate from the gospel and devotion to Christ in a relationship, ever. And if someone tells you you need more, you don't fall for it. The gospel of Jesus Christ not only saves us, it sanctifies us, and it gets us to glory. All right, I went off on a tangent. Okay, the temptation along the way in sanctification, and I'm finishing with this, just bear with me. Knowledge has puffed you up because you know more, you have more of God now. Temptation is religious observance has puffed you up because you do more, you have more of God now. That's a temptation. Be careful. It can be called legalism, and it is dangerous to your walk with Christ. He says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisee. It creeps in and takes over, and before you know it, your religious pride has taken over you. Legalists are super rigid religiously. You can stand up next to a, a real legalist and you just feel like, man, they are so godly and disciplined and strong. And they don't put up with no disobedience, nothing. In church, I have seen legalistic homes produce kids who live with license and live in just like the world lives. Super legalistic, rigid religious homes and they end up going from legalistic homes to license and living like the world i've seen legalists themselves they're so they're so non there's not a lot of grace that oozes from them and they're so strict in their devotion to christ and they're so they're so out with it and strong and then you look up years later and they are living like the world. And you're like, man, they were so strong. 
They were so devout. There was no wiggle room, man. They were devoted to Jesus. And, the, and, and then all of a sudden, now, they're out. They're living just like the world. That's the danger. That's the danger. The truth is, a grace-filled walk with Jesus keeps you walking with him in humility and grace because it's a relationship with Jesus and the gospel. Have you received the fullness of salvation? Yeah, right? You can do that this morning. We encourage you to do that. Pastor Casey, encourage you to do that. Do that. Do it this morning. Yes, it's free and it's wonderful and it's beautiful and it's powerful. And these people are a testimony of old is gone, new has come. How? I heard, I believe, I trusted. And that's it. And that's how you start and that's how you finish. Amen? Let's pray.